No, it's fine. We're in Exodus 8 tonight because it's the next chapter. That's where we're at. Um, I'll just start off. And the Lord spoke to Moses. This is getting to be a pattern now. He speaks to Moses a lot, more than he did to Abraham, more than he did to Isaac or Jacob. He speaks to Moses regularly. Uh, Jacob had to wait decades in between when God talked to him. So God's introducing himself to Moses at the same time that he's introducing himself to Pharaoh. Uh, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Um, God is still not asking Pharaoh to release the, the children of God. He's just asking for three days vacation. And I think it's amazing how long God just says that's the request before he pulls his people out. Pharaoh keeps increasing their burdens and making them work. God's flipped it on their tail because last time we read in Exodus 7, now the Egyptians are having to dig their own wells. And um, he has made it so now they're doing the work. So instead of getting the results Pharaoh thought he would get, the opposite is happening to Pharaoh. The more he fights or the more he pushes against the goads, the more they hurt him. Uh, Also, last time in Exodus 7, uh, just as a reminder, remember, uh, there was a snake that ate the Pharaoh's magician snakes. Um, I told you I'd come back and talk more about some of the Egyptian gods. Wadjet is the snake god of Egypt. And we're going to get into a few different uh, plagues tonight, and you're going to find that these gods are being addressed. Wadjet's a regional god. So those magicians, the cobra would have been their chief thing and to watch their baby kodrus getting eaten by this big staff sized cobra that would have been like our gods are losing it would have been this battle royale in the middle of the palace room and it would have sent a clear message to those local magicians what was going on but we're going to not be so local today god's going to start talking to the whole country the whole nation of egypt and the gods he goes on are progressively more powerful gods in the egyptian pantheon and it's kind of the more you look into this, the more it's interesting. However, I don't want to get too far into it because the Bible doesn't mention any of these gods. They just, they're not relevant. That's the point of this chapter and the last chapter and the next two chapters. They're not relevant. They're less powerful than God. And God's reintroducing himself as the God of the universe. So God turns water into blood. Uh, the Egyptians now start have to start to dig. And in that act alone, seven different Egyptian gods just got beat up. I imagine that there were about seven snakes that got tackled by the first snake. It just seems symmetrical to me. But then I imagine that utilities, utensils have their proper places too, and that doesn't always work that way. So it's not theological. But the different gods, there's a god of the headwaters and rapids of the Nile. There was a god of moisture. There's a god of floodwaters. This is kind of like snow in Minnesota. We have different kinds of snow. In Egypt, they had different parts of the river that they worship. There were source waters. There were lake waters. Remember, they talked specifically about the lakes changing too. That's another god. There's also a god of watery chaos. So just the mess that waters make. So that god would have been taken care of. And of course, the biggest god that would have had anything to do with the river is Osiris. And most of us have heard of Osiris because we learn about her in elementary school. Um, And Osiris would have been a god of life that was strongly associated with the river. It would have been Osiris that Pharaoh would have been talking to when he went out to the river. Okay, We're going to get two more plagues in chapter 8. We're going to get a plague of frogs, which I'm excited about, for no reason other than that it's just wacky weird stuff. And then we're going to get this plague of lice, which has to do with the earth, and we'll see a connection on that, um, and we'll get into that. So the plagues are mirrors of a lot of different things and the layers in which different commentators really love the plagues because you can read a lot into them and i'll try to introduce those ideas to you but i'm not going to go down every rabbit trail with the plagues one rabbit trail is that the plagues represent how the world reacts to children of god and in each plague pharaoh reacts slightly differently it's a great bible study but it's a study in how the enemies of god react to the children of god when they're on fire for Christ. And they can ignore, they can harass, they can lie to them, they can give permissions and then retract them, they can negotiate with them, um, they can plead them, and ultimately they can attack, right? And that's one of the options the world has. But Pharaoh represents the world in that kind of thing. Um, No matter how much Pharaoh allows to happen to his own people, there's still got to be some hope for Pharaoh that he's going to get through this okay. So that's another layer that people look at the plagues with, is that when people resist the gospel, 
these are different ways that the that the world resists the gospel. That's another interpretation of the plagues. Um, the plagues get progressively worse. So another look at the plagues, which I'll kind of touch on as we go through, is that God is merciful and good and gives warnings most of the time, but not all of the time. And it shows how God deals with humans. So that's another layer on this. I could keep going, but again, these are great studies if you want to just dig into something and you're fascinated about the plagues. Um, I'm just going to generally go with the anger, the, the angle, and I did last time in chapter 7. God's revealing himself because that's what the Bible says he's doing so that Pharaoh will know that I'm the Lord God. And as we go through it, um, he's definitively greater than any of the gods that have been created since he created the world. So humanity has grown, populated the earth, and now God's sending a definitive message. And in that sense, the messages he sends with the plagues is his dominion over the earth. And every aspect of the earth is represented through the plagues. And I kind of like that angle. It's the one that gets me the most excited. So that's the one I'm running with this time. Next time we go through the Bible, maybe something else will be on my heart. But So we had the Nile gods, which were all about water. We also have Jesus that turned the water into the wine. right? We have the frog gods coming up, which represent protection and fertility. And I want you to listen for how it mentions the air, um, because Jesus calms the storm and deals with the air. So most of the plagues, this is another layer, get mirrored in the New Testament too, where all of the bad things in these chapters... Jesus does something beautiful and that's what that it's just a layer that the Jewish people would have picked up on so when he turned the water into wine that would have spoke loudly to Jewish people it would have been something that they were like wow so but let's keep going the second plague frogs and the Lord spoke to Moses go to Pharaoh and say to him thus says the Lord let my people go and they're there that they may serve me but if you ref- but if you refuse to let them go both God and Moses have already they already know that he's going to refuse Behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. The thing that's actually cursed here is not the frogs, it's the territory. The earth is getting cursed, right? So the river shall bring forth forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up into your house, into your bedroom. They could have just left it into your house, but they go into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants and on your people, into your ovens and into your kneading bowls, all the gross places, and the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on your servants. I don't know about y'all, but frogs are one of the grossest animals in the world to me. To think of a frog on me makes me, I would, if I looked down and saw a frog, I would freak, right? For some of us, it's spiders, snakes. Yep, they're all there. We've already had snakes, but frogs there. God's, in some ways, this sounds like an odd plague because nobody really gets hurt. All that you're doing is making people uncomfortable. If I found a frog in my bed, doesn't hurt me. It's just nasty. It's like, are you trying to tell me something, God? And when they're in my kneading bowl before, and then you're trying to cook, and then you got to rewash the dishes. Remember Egyptians' fix fixation with cleanliness? They worshipped cleanliness. And God's going to poke fun at that a little bit. I think God's revealing his mercy to people. This is not a real plague. This is just a plague of inconvenience. He's showing his sovereignty, but not an arrogance. He's just doing their, they worship these frogs. He's doing it. He's showing his justice because they're getting a chance to repent here. As a people, they're all going to see this. And I think he's showing a sense of humor. You worship frogs, you can have frogs. Let's play this game. And that's where you start looking into frog stuff with Egyptians. Did anybody look at this ahead of time? Just out of pure geek. Okay. Egypt was fascinated with frogs. It was one of the, they had scarab beetles. We all associate the beetles with Egypt. Frogs were huge. And if you look at those hieroglyphics next to the beetles somewhere, there's probably a frog. We just don't notice it because it's not as exotic, right? But frogs were everywhere. The reason you don't see as many frogs as beetles is because frogs were only a god that were for women. So they represented fertility, they represented beauty, they represented childbirth. And I could see when Grant first came out and I saw how much slime was associated with, I could see frogs associated, I get that. But Heket was the god of protection for women. And frogs, Heket actually had a frog head. 
So with Egyptians, you had a human body, and then you just take the head, replace it with an animal. You've got a new god. So it wasn't hard. The priests weren't imaginative with that. Any animal you could think of, you just stick the head on a person's body, you got a new god for your pantheon. If your god, something goes wrong, you go, oh, well, there's a new god that we forgot to tell you about. This god has a crocodile head, and they represent this thing that was bad in your life. So we'll pray to that god so it doesn't happen again. Um, and humans tend to make up these kinds of things. The frogs represent fertility because primarily they breed and they didn't have as many rabbits, right? So in Minnesota, you, you breed like bunnies. In Egypt, you breed like frogs, right? So you can kill off frogs, but they wouldn't kill frogs. Part of their belief system is that the spirit that's in that little frog, that frog's there to help you. And so you take something gross that might come up into your house and you go, oh, don't kill it. It's a nice little frog. And so eventually generations go by and you tell the kids, just throw it out in the yard, but we don't kill frogs. You know, they're good at killing flies. And flies in Egypt and the Middle East are annoying. So frogs are good. They're, they protect us. They guard us. Um, they're closely associated with resurrection because they keep coming back every season. They're a seasonal animal. You can hear them at some parts of the year. And even when Christianity came to Egypt, they still worshipped Heket, and they wrote, I am the resurrection, right on top of their Heket amulets. Because the amulets themselves were valuable, so the Egyptians didn't throw them away. They just added a cross and would write, I am the resurrection. And the cross would have a frog-shaped circle, and then they'd just put a cross under it, and it's called an Ankh. So if you think of Egypt today and you see Ankhs, that's where they were adding Christianity to their own belief. And if you think that's weird, we still put Christmas trees in our houses. And that's from Nordic pagan rituals that you would bring the Christmas tree into your house. So a lot of Christians, when a Christianity first comes in the area, they would do that. So Heket, if you think of Ankhs and how popular they are, almost every woman didn't wear a little cross necklace. They wore a little frog necklace, and it was their protection god. So it's something that the god of midwives were actually called servants of Heket, um, and they helped make childbirth easier because frogs know how to make babies. So... Remember the first policy that caused our problems in Exodus 1 was the Pharaoh started killing kids. And he, the first group of people he went to was the midwives to start killing kids. So this plague is really tied into God responding to Pharaoh's evil. And okay, you want to do that? Then let's show you who's the God of the midwives. Is it Heket or is it the God of the universe? We'll find out. God wins. I'll tell you. I, I can't keep secrets. Then God spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause the frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So Egypt worshipped these frogs. They didn't want to kill them. They're little gods. The Hebrews, however, could kill them. They didn't have any issue killing frogs. They're just frogs. So this is a plague that would have affected everybody in the land, but the Hebrews would have just killed them, right? And the Egyptians couldn't. They had to deal with them. So this is an invasion of frogs. It's not an invasion of birds or mammals or crocodiles. Crocodiles would have been really evil. Frogs are, that's a merciful animal to pick. Out of all the animals of Egypt you could have picked, vipers, you know, he picks frogs. But in doing this, you have the rivers again, you have the frog god, Heket, you have gods of birth, you have all the gods of all the animals of the land. That's another eight gods that could be represented in this particular plague. And the magicians did so with their enchantments, verse 7, and brought up frogs out of the land of Egypt. Again, this is the same as with the blood. They can't undo the plague. They don't have the kind of power to send all the frogs. So God covers the land in frogs. You would think of any miracle the magicians could come up with, it would be disappearing frogs. That would be the counter miracle. But they don't. They, they just mimic God because they can't do anything on their own. Right? Levi added a great point. This could have been a list of like what's going on with the magicians. Because the magicians get mentioned often. Is that um, and I forgot to say probably the most obvious, which is the biblical claim, that supernaturally they are, in fact, creating frogs. And they're doing this thing, or they're making them appear, come up out of the water. Um, so it, there could be demonic stuff going on and whatnot. But even then, God fills the land, the Egyptians pull a frog out of a hat. The level of power is not equal. But it's enough for Pharaoh to harden his heart. Verse 8. 
the Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. So this is the first time the Pharaoh relents at all. He asks for mercy. God gives mercy. It fulfills the prophecy of Exodus 7.1 where God said, I'm going to make you as God because Pharaoh asks Moses to entreat the Lord. In other words, Pharaoh does see Moses and Aaron as the pathway to talk to this God. In other words, he's giving up his role as the primary pathway to talk to all the gods. Here's one God he can't talk to. Moses is as God to Pharaoh. Um, I never double-side this, but I did tonight. Sorry about that. I like the Exodus 7-1 that it's a fulfilled prophecy because it's like a short-term prophecy. God says something will happen, and then it happens. And the Bible has hundreds of those. And I like to point them out because it's hundreds of fulfilled prophecies that make me believe the big prophecy that God's coming back. It's because all, God always keeps his word to the letter and he doesn't fail in that. And I think that's kind of cool. So I like pointing out the little prophecies when they get fulfilled. It's also funny how things get when things are ugly. When it's gross and you've got nastiness everywhere, Pharaoh suddenly wants Moses, where every time prior, Moses has come to Pharaoh. Moses has to get Pharaoh's attention but notice that this time Pharaoh calls Moses in and Pharaoh wants to get Moses' attention. Pharaoh is then completely self-absorbed as a human being. He'll say anything and do anything, but what he really cares about is Pharaoh. And we know that about Pharaoh now, right? He represents that kind of person. He is that kind of person. Verse 9, And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede, intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses that they may re remain in the river only. I, the accept the honor is an odd phrase. Why is Moses doing this? Why doesn't he just say, okay? And I, I think it's cool that Moses still acts in respect with Pharaoh. He's acting with humility. I'm going to elevate you and you can have the honor of saying when the frogs will disappear. And I think that that's wonderful because in the flesh, you'd think Moses would want to say, so you believe there's a God now? That you want to drive the point home. Here's Pharaoh at a weak point that Moses could just push on this and be that I told you so guy. I would. But he doesn't. Moses just says, let me give you the honor. When do you want to get rid of the frogs? Another thought, Moses wants to make sure future skeptics like us can't read that this is an accident of nature. Just like with the water, when he does it, when he taps the water, there's a timing to this, which the claim of the Bible is that this is supernatural. So if Moses can set the timing that the frogs will go away, he's not a botanist. He doesn't have that kind of scientific knowledge. There's not really a scientific explanation. There might be one for frogs coming out of the river when it turns to blood. That kind of makes sense to me. They don't want to live in the blood, right? But there isn't an explanation that they would just all die at the same moment or that they could only live so long out of water. No, they're amphibious. They can live quite a while out of water. So Moses also reminds Pharaoh, look at the language there, I shall intercede for you. That's what Pharaoh asked for. But look at what he adds on. For your servants, for your people, to destroy the frog from you and your houses. I think Moses is trying to remind him, Pharaoh, this isn't just about you. You're hurting your people here. You are the leader of a nation. You have responsibilities for these people that Moses didn't necessarily want to do on his own, but Moses understands that part of leadership is serving your people. And Pharaoh doesn't even understand this. I'm thinking Pharaoh's just kind of new, right? And he's just one of those spoiled brats that kind of gets into office. And Pharaoh, this 80-year-old guy, is reminding him, you mean I'll intercede for you and for your people too, right, Pharaoh? Like we're doing this for your nation? Um, anyways, anyways, here's the worst thing. Verse 10, so he said, tomorrow... Like Pharaoh's like, okay, then I want you to make the frogs disappear tomorrow. Why doesn't he say, like right now, make the frogs go now? And it's one of those things where you get to see that Pharaoh's still holding his pathetic will, like it matters what he thinks. It doesn't matter. Moses is giving him that honor, but why would he wait till tomorrow? That's one more night of frogs in your bed. And all of your people have to suffer this inconvenience because you're a jerk. And that's kind of what I'm thinking. Pharaoh's a jerk. This is mean. You know, he could he could have solved the frog thing now, but he waits another 24 hours, or maybe they're talking in the evening, and who cares? It's eight hours of trying to sleep with frogs hopping in your bed. 
That's a nasty night. He's going to have a country of tired people. And he said, verse 10, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like your, the Lord, our God. Moses even says our God. There's nobody like our God. He's trying to welcome Pharaoh into a partnership almost. Verse 11, and the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. Again, reminding them, you're going to take care of your country here, and they shall remain in the river only. We're not going to kill all the frogs because they have an ecological benefit. So the Lord our God made the whole world. He's the God of Egypt too in Moses' eyes. And Pharaoh is now gaining infinity with God. Uh, he's trying to manipulate God because we know he's giving it lip service. Um, and he tells and he tells Moses what he wants to hear, right? Verse 12, Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord. Oh, let me say this too about verse 10 and 11. It starts with, So he said, and he said. There's two different he's there, but they're not different words. It's that they're right next to each other. Because I was trying to think, okay, so Pharaoh says tomorrow... Is Pharaoh saying, let it be according to your word that you may know there's no God like our God? Or is that Moses saying that? And I don't know if that's 100% clear. You can, either way, the message is the same. Um, Verse 12. And Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses. So they left the house. It's very polite frogs. They walked out of the kitchen ovens and died outside the courtyards and out of the fields. And they, the people of Egypt, gathered them together in heaps. And this is, I think, a really important phrase for a couple reasons. And the land stank. Let's focus on what stank means. If you look up the word, it means stanky, right? So it's that word. And then you start thinking, when have you ever smelled something that absolutely stank? And you think in your life, when have I sm- have you ever smelled dead things like really dead things? Have you smelled vinegar right after Steph uses it to clean something, right? It's really stinky stuff hurts your nasal cavity. Like you breathe in and it's actually kind of painful. Now, if you have millions of dead frogs and the legs land stinks, they don't only stink of death; they stink of frog. It's double stink. And I think this is important because. God's rubbing their noses in what they thought was beautiful and amazing and made necklaces out of it. And he's pointing out how ugly this idol worship is to the Egyptians. This thing you worship is stinky and it's nasty. They're disgusting beasts. You would think with all these dead frogs, you'd have lots of vultures, hyenas, scavengers. Egypt has scavengers. Nowhere to be seen. They just heap them in piles. And where's the thing eating those? Like, so, so it's also kind of a miracle that the Egyptian gods of the vultures and there's Egyptian gods of hyenas, there's all these other gods out there that aren't showing up to help the Egyptians. So they're probably praying to their little vulture god and their vulture god's nowhere to be seen. And I think it's interesting that they gathered them into heaps and the lad stank means there's a number of other gods that aren't showing up to help the Egyptians. So God's doing not only the frog god here, but he's doing this. The other thought was that the, the land stank what stinks is air, right? We smell air, and that's stinky. So if you think of it, we've already dealt with water with the Nile, but the frogs coming out of the water onto the earth, the end curse is now the air is plagued too. So they're dealing with bloody water and stanky air. This is not a good country. This is becoming very hell-like when you have that kind of thing. But when Pharaoh saw him there, When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, this isn't relief for Pharaoh. He gets all the perfumes, right? He gets armies of people to clear the palace out. So the air of the fresh air just washes through the palace. All his people are suffering the stinky air. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, it's relief for him, not for his people. Very selfish. He hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Often people go back on their word. Pharaoh's going to go back on his word a lot. I could get into that, but I think we all kind of know what that feels like, what it looks like. When we forget our vows or we make an apology, but there's no action to follow up the apology, the apology implies an initial infraction, the forgetting that you have to do something when you apologize. That's even worse. 
It's like when somebody apologizes for you being mad. I'm sorry you feel mad about that. It's like, you're not saying you're sorry. There's nothing apologetic about it. And Pharaoh not doing anything or letting the people go, it's even worse. It's like a double sin. Or it's like that popular, not popular, it's that kid in middle school that acted like they were popular and they would be your best friend, you know, when there's a few people in the room. But as soon as more people show up and you're not the coolest person in the room, they're gone. They're off to be with the coolest person in the room. That's Pharaoh. He's like, I, Moses, you're a great guy. You know, let's hang out. Our God, we can celebrate this. And yeah, let's get some mercy and relief. And as soon as there's cooler people in the room and the palace has got the stanky air gone, Pharaoh's off to hang out with other people. And people make vows and they forget them. So the third plague, pay attention, comes with no warning whatsoever. God doesn't warn about the next plague and give Pharaoh an opportunity. Pharaoh's just going to suffer the next plague. So we're into this kind of trio of warning, no warning, mercy. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. There's only two uses of the word lice in the entire Bible. This is one of them. In the Psalms, there's another one that refers back to this plague. And there's a couple of plagues where this is the only place in the Bible you see this Hebrew word. So we don't know what it means. The Greeks, the Greek Jewish people, when they translated the Septuagint, they translated that word as mosquitoes, which is very Minnesota appropriate. Um, and, uh, and the Hebrews, or in the English, we translate it as lice. Um, but we don't really know if it's lice. The Egyptians don't have a lice god because you can't put it on the head of a human being. They didn't have the little microscopes they'd need to do that. Um, they do, however, have lots of gods that have to do with creation and making things. So the Jewish people had one creator, one god, Genesis 1-1, right? The Egyptians had lots of creator gods that made things to fight with each other. So they have six or seven different creator gods. So if you look at the earth, because this is not just lice, it's Aaron's going to strike the dust of the land. So we've had the river, water, we've had stinky air, air, and now we've got land. Can you see what God's doing here? He's showing dominion over all creation. And he's hitting those things that in most pagan religions, water, earth, fire, land. And we're going to get to fire next week. So there's another seven gods. We're up to like 15 different gods now that have shown themselves to be powerless in the face of Yahweh. So the Egyptian creator gods are associated with those little scarabs. So whenever you see an Egyptian scarab, that's one of their creator gods that makes things. Uh, they have bird gods, they have earth gods, they have protection gods, they have health gods, all of which are showing to be powerless right now. The key here isn't therefore if it's a mosquito or a lice bug, which is where the arguments happen. That's not the point of this. The point is that it came from the dirt. The dirt of the earth went from dirt to bug. When's the last time we've seen dust turning into life? Genesis, whatever chapter, five? What chapter is that? Ish in there? That's the last time we saw it. So God is making life from non-life. That's the point. He's challenging the creator gods. And he's making a lot of it. So now we have water, air, and earth all plagued. The dirt makes everything unclean. The Egyptians washed a lot. We've made that point. And their worship of cleanliness, in the same way they worship the protection of the frog goddess, their worship of cleanliness now gets turned on its head because everybody's unclean. Frogs didn't make you unclean. They were holy. But dusty, licey bugs, they make you unclean in anybody's world. You see people with little lice eggs on their head? you're unclean, don't come into my house or touch anything, right? You're unclean. And we have good reason for thinking that. Verse 17. And so they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth. And it became the lice on man and beast. Remember, they worshiped all these beasts. And all the dust of the land became lice throughout the land of Egypt. That's a lot of lice. Naturalists will explain how dead frogs can lead to insects, the flies. So when you hear naturalist explanations, well, if there were all these frogs that died because something happened with the algae broom in the river, then yes, there would have been tons of flies that weren't getting eaten and would have been breeding inside the dead frog bodies. But they skip over the lice plague because frogs don't go to lice. There's not a naturalist explanation for this or even mosquitoes. 
if you want to translate that as mosquitoes. But that's not the claim in verse 17. Look very carefully at verse 17. The claim here is that the dust of the earth became lice on man and beast. The word became there is yatsa. We've seen that tons of times, scores of times. Yatsa is always in reference to bringing something forth or to create something out of nothing. Yatsa is God's word. When God goes to the craft, crafting room, he does yatsa. When we go to the crafting room, we translate things that are already created into new things. But God makes things from nothing, and that's what he's doing here. He's showing that he can make and that he has dominion over the earth. He's doing it all at the same time. So that's the claim. Verse 18, now the magicians worked with their enchantments to bring forth, again, that's the word yatsa. They tried to create too, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. I like the end of that sentence, or it's another sentence. So there were lice. They tried their darndest. Again, they're still trying to mirror Moses' thing. Instead of getting rid of lice, they're trying to add to their lice population. So it's a horrible, these are bad magicians. I would fire them just because they're doing the wrong kinds of things. They had nothing they could sacrifice because the Bible points out all the beasts were unclean too. So the magicians are helpless. They don't have their primary tool of magic, which is to sacrifice something, right? So, but I think there's a deeper point here, which really relates to today, because I think our magicians are still trying to do this. There are massive million-dollar efforts for scientists to mimic life from non-life. Because if they can do that, they can show that the creation of life is some sort of scientific process. And we have lots of extremely smart people spending their lives dedicated to trying to do this in a lab. And our magicians still can't make life from non-life. They can't make dirt turn into living bugs. Um, as much as they may want to try or do that, that's something they can't do. And we've been thinking about this for a long time. If you think of Frankenstein, the whole premise of that book is this pursuit of the scientific world, the medical world, to create living things out of not living things. And what if we could do that? And Mary Shelley comes up with Frankenstein. It's a science fiction novel. The whole thing based on this idea that we could imitate God and we could do something that only God can do. So our magicians are still trying to match this miracle. It's the first one the, the, the Egyptian magicians can't mimic. So they're stuck at this one. And then, so this is kind of interesting. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This thing you're seeing right now, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. His own magicians are telling him, this God's real. We can't do anything about it. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. So now his own people are not on his side. His little cohort of psychophants are telling him one thing and he doesn't have his support. Pharaoh's all by himself. I imagine the Pharaoh's coming in kind of humbly. Uh, boss, we can't do this one. Like, we don't know what's going on here. So they're admitting their own failure. Court magicians never admit their own failure, even today. You don't say, I screwed up if you work for a government official. You say, I'm still working on it, boss. Right? There's other ways to handle failure in the workplace. The magicians coming in and admitting that they're wrong, that this is the finger of God, they're at, they have to be at their wit's end. Um, so I think that's kind of important. They too now are unclean because those magicians also have lice. They're unclean. They can't go into any Egyptian temple or do any Egyptian worship practice because they're all unclean. So all idol worship comes to a freezing halt if they follow their own rules and don't do it when they're unclean people because they're not supposed to as, as priests. So all idol worship comes to an end with the plague of lice and Pharaoh hardens his heart. There is at this point no rational reason for Pharaoh to continue to deny God and what God wants. But that's the point. Now at this point, we've stripped everything away from Pharaoh, even his own magicians. All he's got left is his own pride. It's him versus God, darn it. And he thinks he's going to win. Um, maybe it was from the start, but we as humans build up lots of layers around ourselves that give ourselves excuses and reasons not to serve God. And it takes a lot of time for God to wear those layers away. And at some point, godly people just are like, I'm just going to serve you, Lord. And you do it out of love, not out of God attacking you in some way. And I think that's the thing with Pharaoh is he's, he's at least authentic and he's not going to fake yet that he's going to follow God. He will fake it. 
that's one of his other responses. We're getting there. So magicians now see Jehovah as a legitimate God. They add him to their pantheon. Here's what's interesting. Between the old kingdom and the middle kingdom, they added a God to the Egyptian pantheon, right? Here's the God's description. This God is Amun, Ammon. This is a creator God. This is the patron God of the city of Thebes. So they give him a minor ranking. He's a creator God that gets a minor ranking, right? But they, he's only a finger, right? This is the finger of God. So he doesn't get full status. He's not raw or anything like that. This God rises to preeminence in the new kingdom and becomes one of the top gods in the Egyptian pantheon. It's kind of interesting. I'm not saying Ammon is Jehovah. No way. But it's interesting to see as we shift between periods of Egyptian history how this singular monotheistic creator God rises in a following in Egypt. And there are more people that say, because you pick a God and that's your God. And there, and the, the rise in strength in monotheism in Egyptian history happens right now. And it correlates with what happens in the Bible. But again, they're twisting. They're not serving Jehovah. They're serving Ammon. So it's a twisted, manipulated version of this creator God that made the world. Right? You get him tonight. Uh, verse 20, flies. And the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning. Stand before Pharaoh as he comes out of the water and then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. This is mirroring what he did on the first plague, right? Good morning, Pharaoh. Can you let my people go? And they wait till he comes out of the water. So that's respectful. He can do whatever he's going to do. The fact that he's still going out to the water might imply that this is bath time. He has to see Moses and think not blood again, please. It took forever to get off last time. So I imagine Pharaoh kind of hopping out of the water, you know, when you try to run in water and it slows you down. So I see him splashing again, just getting out of the water as quick as he can, right? This is the fifth request that we're going to make of Pharaoh or Moses is going to. He's had a few chances. He's warmed up to the idea that when Moses says something, it's going to happen. Um, And Moses gives him the or else in verse 21, or else. If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms. It doesn't say of flies in the Hebrew. We've added that in the English translation. So there's no, it should be in italics in your Bible. And, but of flies is not in there. I will send swarms on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. Same language as the frogs, right? And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms and also the ground on which they stand. So you can't walk without stepping on these swarms whatever they are, right? And I will set apart the land of Goshen, that's, remember, where the Israelites settled, in which my people dwell, that no swarm shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I'm the Lord here in Egypt, too. I'm your God, right? And the children of Israel are going to get spared. This is the first plague. It's mentioned that they're spared. Um on the ground in which they stand, Katie. It's like a routine with our dog every week. Lay down. Good boy. Um, So God's still introducing himself to Pharaoh. Um, Verse 23. I loved this verse. This verse made me super happy. So this is where I went finding other things in the Bible. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. That's worded weird, right? And it just at a glance you read that and it's tomorrow this sign shall be. Sounds like Yoda. Um, there's a reason for that. And, and it's important to understand this verse and the power that's coming out on this verse. A few different distinctions. The first one where God's going to separate the people, right? So he's going to make some differences. He's not just dealing with the planet. He's going to deal with his people and other people. So God, uh, we don't hear Pharaoh's refusal here. Um, It just notes that it happens. (laughs) Tomorrow the sign shall be. Um, Tomorrow is the same length of time that Pharaoh asked for for, to relief from the frogs, remember? So God's giving that same amount of time now. Only when Pharaoh asks for that time allotment, his people are cursed during that time. When God gives that time, this is a relief period that God gives. God gives relief. Pharaoh gives gives a curse. Difference is the key word here. Verse 23, I will make a difference. In Hebrew, that's peduth. I think that's how you pronounce it. 
It's the first time we've ever seen it in the Bible. What's cool is that there's only three other uses of that word. And every other use of that word, it doesn't mean difference. Um, in other contexts, it, that word means the same thing as to ransom someone, to deliver someone. There's a distinction that's getting made, but it's a distinction where one group gets delivered or saved and the other group is not. So listen to the other uses. Psalm 111, you're going to see your first one. He has sent redemption, Beduth, to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever, holy and awesome as his name. And you're like, wow, that's a cool line. And when you read Psalm 111, I'll remind you that it was back here in Exodus 2. This is the first time God does that in the history of the world. God's going to distinguish between his people and people that have chosen not to listen to him. Five different times so far, right? Psalm 130, we hear that word again. This makes its way into the songs of the people of God. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord, with the Lord there is mercy, and with him his abundant paduth, division, his abundant distinction of his people versus other people. Isaiah 50, it gets to be even more clear. Why when I came was there no man? Rhetorical questions. Why when I called did no one answer? Is my hand shortened at all that I can't redeem, Paduth? I can save people. Why is no one listening to me when I'm your redemption? I'm your salvation. Or have I no power to deliver? Indeed, with my re rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make, I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there's no water and they die of thirst. God is doing something here where he's not just talking to Pharaoh. He's talking to the whole world. I will make a difference. I will make a redemption between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. That's the same message we have today in 2019. I will make a difference between my people and the world's people. And I'm coming tomorrow. Isn't that kind of the gospel message in a nutshell? And we see that word redemption. When you get to the New Testament, it's mostly in Greek. So we don't see it. But you see the word redemption throughout the New Testament. Because Jesus is our deliverance. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. And this is the first time we see it in the Bible. Is in the middle of these plagues. Things are going bad. There's the world versus God's children of God. And God's saying, I'm going to make a distinction. My people won't suffer these next. They do suffer the first few plagues, but they're not going to suffer this one. I'm going to redeem my people from this one. They won't have swarms in their houses. Swarms could also be mosquitoes. I like to think it's those scarab beetles because he did that with the frogs. So I like to think of the swarms being beetle swarms, but that's not biblical. That's just shonical. Okay. So the plan of redemption will play out mostly in the New Testament where that word redeem becomes a staple of our, of our theology, right? So first plague, the waters are messed up. Second plague, there's these unclean, disgusting frogs everywhere that people adore and wear as necklaces, right? The third plague, there's lice, everybody's dirty. Literally, everybody's dirty, right? And then the fourth plague is God's going to distinguish his people in the fourth thing. And you think, huh, do you see a pattern here? God uses waters for judgment. Everybody is in love with their sin. Everybody's dirty from their sin. God's going to redeem some of the people from the sin. He's giving a roadmap to the redemptive plan of the universe. And he's doing it with frogs and lice and flies. And he's using these interesting tools to paint a canvas that's going to live through all eternity. I think we're going to get to heaven and read the Bible and see stuff like this. And we're going to be like, really, God? That's a whole level we didn't even see coming. And God will say that's because my ways are better than your ways. My ways are higher than, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Right? And today we can see parts of this because God opens our eyes and lets us see it. The literal translation of this verse, verse 23, is I'm making redemption. My people, your people, tomorrow there's a sign, right? Tomorrow this sign shall be. That's because the Hebrew is saying I'm making redemption. My people, your people, tomorrow a sign. 
that's kind of cool if you think of it in terms of Jesus stuff or, or prophetical about Jesus. So when God talks, we should listen because he talks very specifically. Do I go to this side or this side? That side. No, this side. I'm lost. And the Lord did so, this side. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms came into the house of Pharaoh, his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted because of the swarms. Arab, those, this one that says the thick swarms, that's actually translated grievous swarms. Uh, there's no comparative scriptural translation. It's the only place that gets used. But these are swarms that made you grieve. What is grief? Grief is to mourn something, to suffer a great loss. Now the Egyptians are losing something. This isn't just inconvenience, disgusting frogs in your bed. They're losing something here. Lice make you unclean. It's nasty. It's gross. you got to go through all the treatments, and the middle school nurse keeps calling you into her office. But you don't lose anything with lice. You just lose, like, reputation. But with these swarms, they're consuming, they're eating something, they're taking something. They're causing grief because they're destroying things. At this point, the land is corrupted, not just the people and the animals. In verse 24, the land was corrupted because of the swarms. So it's not just people and animals. The land itself is sick. The Egyptians' belief um, that all of this kind of thing, the water, the land, the air, all of it's sick and disrupted and corrupted. That's hell in the Egyptian religion. He's turned Egypt into their version of hell. This is as bad as it gets. All the water, air, and land is gone. All of it is forsaken by their gods, but there's still some gods left in Pantheon. I actually went through the highlighter and crossed them off. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's a fly god. That one got taken care of. You literally can do this with the whole long list of their gods and realize that God actually takes out every single one. There's still a few left. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, go, sacrifice to your God in the land. The Egyptians can't sacrifice, but now Moses and Aaron are being told they can by Pharaoh. This time, notice in verse 8, he doesn't ask for release, uh, but now he knows the real issue. Uh, He conditions it and says, "You you can go sacrifice to your God in the land. That was the original request. Pharaoh's giving him the request. But he's he's manipulating now. They have to do it in the land. You can't leave Egypt. You can sacrifice to your God, but you can't leave the land to do it. I don't trust you. So when Satan sees he can't win a battle, he offers compromises. Okay, you can do your Christian thing, but do it here. Don't do it there. Um, Don't step away from the world. Stay in it and just add on your Christian stuff too. So still do all that stuff you used to do, but do it as a Christian. You can worship God, but don't get all crazy about it. Just be lukewarm. And that's what Satan does, because Satan doesn't really have any power in the same way Pharaoh has really no power here. And in that way, Moses, unlike me, unlike a lot of people, he sees right through it. And he sees what Pharaoh's trying to do here, this manipulation, this, well, no, that's not, we asked to, yes, we asked to go serve our God, but we had to leave to do it. Why does he say it? Moses says, and Moses says it's not right to do so for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will as He will command us. So Moses goes back to what he originally asked. We don't want part of what we asked. We want the whole thing. Leaving and getting a three-day trip is part of the equation. Abomination of the Egyptians. They're going to be killing cows to sacrifice them. And then they eat the cows. When we get to Leviticus, we see all these feasts. Most of the feasts, most of the sacrifices in the Jewish religion were barbecues. We call it barbecue. They called it sacrifice. They killed the cow and they ate it. There were some of the feasts where they just burned the cow up and say, that would have been a delicious cow, but we're just going to give that to God. Most of the cows the priests of the Jewish temples kill, they not only cook it up and eat it, they give it to all the people and they can take home the leftovers. It's beautiful. It's what we do in churches today. We have barbecues and picnics and we eat. And that's what Moses is saying. But if we go and kill that cow and fend all your vegetarians, they're going to stone us. And they, because this was serious to the Egyptians, it wasn't idle 
light-hearted idol worship. It was their religion. And if you start killing those animals, the Egyptians would kill you because they don't want to be responsible for it, right? Abomination of the Egyptians. So the Jewish religion is not necessarily one of vegetarianism, though if any of you are vegetarians, there's nothing wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But none of you would stone somebody for killing a cow. You'd be like, you eat your cow. I don't want any. But the Egyptians, it was a bigger deal. So verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I will let you go like he's still in control, right? All right, here's what I'll do for you, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you can't go very far away. Intercede for me. So this is his second compromise. Okay, you can do what God's calling you to do, but don't go too far with it, right? Really, Pharaoh has no power to negotiate. Neither does Satan. And when you get into your life and you decide you want to follow Christ, the only one that can hold you back in that is you. Because God says the power that he that is in you once you accept Christ in your life is greater than the one that's in the world. And that your Pharaoh doesn't have that pull on you anymore. He doesn't have the right to condition your Christianity. I will let you go. The tone there is that Pharaoh thinks he still has control, that he's going to let or allow something to happen. <laughs> Um, it's okay to be a Christian. It's okay to be a child of God. Just keep it in reach. Like, I don't want you going three days into the wilderness. Intercede for me. Pharaoh starts to relinquish his power on this one, right? <laughs> Apparently, he didn't like the swarms because they were in his house too. In his belief system, this is a break for Pharaoh. Something's cracking here. God's getting through to Pharaoh because Pharaoh's always seen himself as the intercessor for the people of Egypt. But now he's asking Moses to intercede for him. Pharaoh's acknowledging the God, but now he's acknowledging that he needs God in some way in his life. But he's not serving God. He's going to have Moses do that for him. How many times do we think, and do we see even in the Christian faith, we expect our pastors to do our, our faith for us? The Catholic Church is all about that. The priests intercede for you, but you don't do it yourself. And I think that's the corruption of the Catholic Church today is that they're saying that there's human beings that intercede for you. God never asked for that. The original creation is that man and woman would walk and talk in the garden with him. Direct conversation with God is what he's asking. He wants a relationship. And Pharaoh's not asking for a relationship. He's just recognizing that God's powerful, but he wants someone else to do the God thing for him. I see husband and wives, sadly some of our friends, where one of the spouses is a godly person and serving the Lord, her or himself, and the other spouse just lets that spouse do the God thing for him. Second, listen, don't do that. You both have to serve the Lord. You both have to seek the Lord out for yourself and together. And then you have unity in your marriage. Otherwise, you're just going to bicker over utensils for the rest of your life. It'll go on forever. And it won't be humorous in five, six years. It'll be like, we've been through the utensil thing. Serve the Lord yourself, Pharaoh. Why isn't the Pharaoh joining them? he was a good leader he'd be like all right but here's my thing i want to come with you and worship god with you can i come with you and that still would have been a compromise but think of the difference of that compromise that's pharaoh submitting to god himself instead of doing it so he's saying pray for me and moses is like man i'm not your priest pray for yourself so moses said indeed i'm going to go out from you and i will entreat the lord but he doesn't say for you he just says i'll entreat the lord that the swarms may depart from Pharaoh, but I'm going to also intercede for your servants and for your people. You hear the pattern? What Moses is trying to make a point here with Pharaoh? I'll intercede for all the people of your land. But Pharaoh let, but let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore, because he already has, in not letting the people go sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses is giving mer mercy. Remember, God's already told him that Pharaoh's not going to go for this. Moses knows what Pharaoh's going to do, but he's still being merciful, saying, let's stop this deceit stuff, right? And I think that's really cool. I just think it's nice when you see that kind of mercy coming out of that. So mercy went out, So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and he removed the swarms from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Again, that's a counter miracle for me. The swarms is one miracle. The fact that not one remained... That's impressive because there were piles of frogs, but we don't see piles of these swarms. They're gone. So not only can God create, God can erase. 
I think that's a beautiful thought because there's lots of things in our life that we think can't be taken care of and God can take care of them in an instant. We can have swarms of problems that just evaporate and there's not a sign of them left. And you're like, wow, did I just pray for that? And all those problems just went away? (laughs) Gone? How did that happen? It's a beautiful thought. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Gosh, Pharaoh, this is getting old at this point. Do we feel sorry for the guy or do we start feeling like, come on, God, bring some justice. We're not even close to justice. God's going to give a lot more mercy than I would give this guy. Think about it. If somebody lies to you, do you give them two chances? Three chances? Five? Ten? The pharaohs, the disciples asked Jesus the same question. How many times do we forgive people? Like, really, you want us to just keep forgiving? You remember what he said, right? You don't just, should we forgive him seven times? Where did they get the number seven from, right? Those numbers matter. And Jesus is like, man, that, you're missing it. It's not seven times, it's 70 times seven. It's swarms of forgiveness, right? It goes on and on and on. God can forgive to where not one thing remains because God's ultimate and intimate and beautiful in that way. So Pharaoh hardens his heart. It seems to be getting easier for Pharaoh to harden his heart. He doesn't have his magicians helping him anymore. So as much as it's getting stripped away from Pharaoh, his pride's just replacing every layer. And it happens that way with sin too. At first, it's just an innocent movie we watched. And then it's an addiction, right? At first, it's a computer game, but now we're not hanging out with our family anymore, right? At first, it's just, you know, hanging out with that person at work, and then it becomes adultery. And you just see over time, those things kind of build what was innocent and simple and easy or just a little compromise becomes those things that are destructive in our life. No murderer starts out saying, I'd like to be a murderer today. Like it doesn't happen that way. It starts with sickness in the soul that builds up over years. Criminal psychologists look at how those epic criminals get to where they're at. They've convinced themselves that they did the right thing, almost all of them. But they didn't start there. They started with these little compromises that just come up over time where you got this army of magicians telling you it's the right thing. You got all of Disney telling you if you just look in your heart long enough, you'll find a hero somewhere, right? It's these innocent little things that build up into worldviews, which build up into sinful lifestyles, which build up into destruction. And I think that's what we see with Pharaoh. It just starts out with all his whole court telling him, we can do snakes too. Don't listen to this guy. He's just a bearded old man from the desert. Ignore him. Right? And there's all this support for Pharaoh to harden his heart. But now he's got no support. He's all on his own. He's just hardening his heart all by himself. It's escalating. And Pharaoh, too, starts with wanting this workforce to abusing the workforce, to not caring about his people, to not caring about a whole country and their inconvenience. But now they're actually losing things, the grievous swarms. Pharaoh doesn't even care about the grievous swarms. He's just hardening his heart. And he's going to keep escalating to where he is willing to send his armies out to slaughter millions of people. Epic evil is on the way. And Pharaoh just keeps getting more and more evil. And notice how less and less we see Moses struggling with God. He used to struggle with God. Now he's just, God says it, Moses does it. God says it, Moses does it. And we're seeing that it's easier and easier for Moses to obey God. At the same time, it gets easier and easier for Pharaoh to do these really horrible things to his people. That's evil. You go away from God or you go towards God in those senses. And I'm feeling like we're done, even though I got the next chapter ready to go. But I'm feeling like that's a great place to end. So let's pray. The next chapter is really short. I thought I could get two in tonight. See, I really thought I could. Um, Dear Lord and King, we love you. We're trying to love you. But Lord, even love is something you have to teach us. You have to grow it in our heart over time. And Lord, we want to focus and study your word because it's a, it's a sword that we can use, Lord, but it's also our shelter. Um, it is when we bury it in our hearts, Lord, it forms who we are because we align our thoughts and our thinking to you. Lord, that's what we want. We don't want to follow our own will. We want to follow your will. And you got to teach us how to do it, just like you taught Moses. Uh, and everything in this world, Lord, tells us to harden our heart towards you, to... to Come up with excuses, Lord, that everything in this world wants to grab our attention to snatch us away from your word, from what you have to say to us. Um, And Lord, we have this book of wisdom that shows that that doesn't lead to anything but sin. 
and as innocent as it looks, Lord, it, if it pulls us away from your word, it's it's destructive. It'll become destructive in our life. It'll eat away at us. It'll be a swarm in our life at some point. And Lord, we don't want that. We don't want those simple, innocent things. We don't want our protection amulets to turn into plagues in our house. Uh, we don't want our entertainment, Lord, to dominate our life and become ugly and become disgusting and make the air stink. Lord, it's metaphorical, but it's literal too. Those things that we think are, are what we want in our life are the very things that break our relationships with other people. Anything that gets in the way of you, Lord, is something that we want to get out of our life so that we can serve you. And Lord, strip away those layers of resistance. Um, so And help us to be more like Moses than Pharaoh. Help us to not harden our hearts, Lord, but to open and soften our hearts, to continue to learn how to follow you even when it's hard, even when we don't know where you're leading us. If you tell us to walk, Lord, help us to walk. If you tell us to say something, help us to hear your voice because the sheep know their shepherd. And we want to read your word to the point where we recognize your voice when you're telling us what way to go. That there'll be a voice behind our ear that tells us which way to go, to go left or to go right, and we listen to you and we stop trying to think that through for ourselves. Um, and Lord, we just honor you and want to lift you up. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the lessons of this sort of thing. Lord, I even thank you that we can start to learn about Egyptian gods, not because they have power or relevance, but Lord, because we still have gods in our culture today. And those gods come right from ancient times. We, people haven't changed. The things we worship haven't changed. Uh, the places we look for protection, for security, for hope, uh, those things haven't changed. We just change the names. Um, and Lord, help us to uh, see those things for what they are. They're false hopes. Uh, they're false promises, uh, but your promises are true, even in the short term, but especially in the long term, Lord. We just trust in your promises, your will, and your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.